Lord, your word says how blessed is the man that trembles at God's word. And James encourages us to be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive ourselves. Lord, so we pray as we hear the word today that we would approach it with uh, the idea of obeying the word, of doing the word, of living the word, and uh, incorporating it into our lifestyle. We pray that as we look at this uh, important truth of the necessity of proclamation evangelism, uh, that we would uh, step back from our lives and re-examine how we're living and make a way to do proclamation evangelism. Amen. I forgot my basket. So, uh, six weeks from today, it'll be Sunday, November 15th, and we will be having a similar celebration to what I'm celebrating today, because six weeks from today will be the 50th anniversary of when Ned Berube uh, received Christ after hearing uh, a little sliver of, of the gospel. And uh, every year for, for me, uh, October 2nd is a very important day because uh, as it was getting dark on Bowling Green State University campus on October 2nd, a man named Joe McAuliffe shared the gospel with Kathy Pickthorn, who later became Catherine Weiss. And uh, after hearing a little sliver of the gospel for 15 or 20 minutes, she received Christ. And her whole life was changed and uh, permanently. 49 years later, uh, you heard a little bit of where she's at by listening to her message at 9.30 this morning. On the English dissenters, the best subject of yet. So, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have Catherine come up and share her testimony briefly in a little bit, but I want to start with um, I know I'm often criticized that we have too many scriptures, and um, but you know one of the things I found is no matter what you do as a pastor people are going to criticize you. Some people are going to like what you do. Some people are going to, don't, they don't, could care less. No matter what you do, you can't get them excited. And uh, other people are mad at you no matter what you do. So you just got to do what the Lord wants you to do. So we're going to have too many scriptures today, just warning you. Yeah, hopefully you'll recover from that. Uh I don't want to get here. I, I need somebody to like a guy to sit in the front row always. Like John, where's my John Luke? Uh, Sam, sit up here so you, in case I need you to sit up with Catherine. She needs someone to watch her. <laughs> Keep her on the straight and narrow. Oh, can you bring me my coffee too, Sam? <laughs> See, that's why I really wanted you to come up here. How can you share the word without coffee? There. When I was in grad school, Louis Saber, a friend of Eric Myers and mine, walked into my office and said, Weiss, I never know if it's coffee or the kingdom of God that really motivates you. <laughs> I drank a lot of coffee in those days. All right. So... Uh, In the scripture readings today, uh, one, one verse that was read is Matthew 21, 43, which I consider kind of the, uh, I, I guess it's called a fulcrum or the, you know, the, the thing that teeter-totter pivots on. All of human history pivoted on this verse. 
Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. I believe that's the key verse to understand the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Both Matthew and Luke are primarily covenant lawsuits against Jerusalem, Judea, and the people of Israel because God had called them to be a special people for himself and they had refused generation after generation after generation to obey his word as delivered through his prophets and, uh, and so forth. And they were, uh, like so many Christians today, a law unto themselves. And I actually believe that the Lord is speaking this word all the time, and especially to contemporary Christianity. You know, a lot of people uh, have noted that Protestantism in the mid-1800s divided into essentially two camps. Uh, The liberal modernists who uh, doubt traditional teachings about who wrote various books of the Bible, who reject miracles and the supernatural, who uh, have embraced Darwinism in favor and and rejected Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and so forth. And uh, the conservatives who were kind of reacting against that to try to save the core elements of the faith. And as a general rule, the liberal camp has moved more and more progressively to the beliefs of the Sadducees, while the current uh, conservative camp has moved more and more to the ideas and the way of life and the beliefs of the, of the Pharisees. And neither one of them liked Jesus at all. And so I honestly think that, uh, like, a lot of people are shocked that, uh, especially in Europe, that's uh, kind of done in Europe, uh, that, that happened, we, fi- we finished with that chapter. Uh, Europe is down to almost all European nations that were once called Christendom are somewhere between 1% to 4% of the population, in, in, depending on the nation, are practicing Christians. A civilization that was called Christendom. You got to hear that. And you know, we have a calling at Grace Christian Fellowship, and we've been uh, at, in a time where we're asking people to humble themselves, to fast, to speak, set, uh, uh, to take extra time to seek the Lord and so forth. And we kind of think these kind of things could never happen to us. But when, when I was young, uh, Logan, I was, I was hoping you were here. Last night, uh, Iowa State, at Iowa State, beat Oklahoma University in football. And the last time that Iowa State beat Oklahoma on their home field was about 40 days before John F. Kennedy was elected as president, 60 years ago. Uh, that's just a little known but useless fact, for, just for Logan. <laughs> Got to have something for everybody. Logan, I'm really trying, even though the, the Big Ten isn't playing, to find some reason to follow college football before the Big Ten is, starts to play, but it's really difficult. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, I can still root against all the t- teams I dislike, like Oklahoma and all the Florida teams and so forth. So you can, at least there's something to root for in college football until the Big Ten comes back to life. So this verse, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit. So there, the Bible has many themes that you should start to get in the habit of tracing them from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in your thinking. One of the most important themes that's introduced in Genesis 1 
and goes all the way to Revelation 22 is the idea of fruit bearing. And God establishes the principle in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. What comes out of our lives in terms of our character, in terms of uh, our multiplying our life into disciples and so forth, all of that is uh, the fruit of what kind of tree we really are. And all of that is actually the way you're given where you can discern who you are in Christ by the kind of fruit that's coming forth. So uh, I just want to kind of encourage us today that the gospel has power. And it has power when it's deliberately spoken. And there are times when God opens doors for us to speak the gospel, and we miss the door. And there are other times when God has called us to deliberately go out and uh, create a a wineskin, you might say, a creative format, whether you go out with two people and share, uh, like I've, I've done it at all kinds of strange places, uh, like the UD ghetto, they call it, which is not a ghetto at all. Uh, it's actually pretty nice. <laughs> but it's uh, where the UD students party. I remember one time I was sharing the gospel with my youngest daughter when she was still quite solid with Christ. And, and um, we shared the gospel with this guy that was really eating it up and asking good questions. He was quite drunk. And... Uh, after we got done sharing, I said to Elizabeth, I said, boy, that seemed like he went pretty good. And she said, yeah, but I doubt if he'll remember it tomorrow because <laughs> he was that wasted. <laughs> I said, you're probably right. So uh, there are dichotomies in our thinking are an inevitable part of our of our fallen state as human beings. I always wrestle with, and I don't know the answer to this, I imagine it varies a little bit by person and probably by theological issue, but I always wrestle with, do we think in terms of either or rather than both and uh, because we're sinful or is it because we're finite? But much of the Bible presents truths, you need to hear these words carefully, that are seemingly paradoxical, but understood from God's perspective in the, by the Holy Spirit, understood rightfully, are not antithetical. The Christian life starts with three such great truths. The first and most important one is called the Trinity. Uh, a word that doesn't uh, appear in the Bible, and I always forget if it was origin or who was the first person who coined the term Trinity, or, and not, they also use the word triunity. But the fact is, uh, we worship a God who is three. We worship a God who is one. Try to figure that out. You know, St. Augustine probably wrote the greatest work on the Trinity. I'm not sure if it will clear up all your thinking if you read it or not, though. <laughs> so the fact is, our God is three individual beings, persons, and he is one God. It manifested to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from all eternity, he's been and always, it, it, he was, is, and always shall be three persons in one being. That's the first great truth of our faith. The second great truth of our faith is called the incarnation. The second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, 
is the eternally begotten Son of God. That's a somewhat seemingly paradoxical in itself, right? Uh, You know, there's Elijah. Elijah was begotten at a certain point in time. Caleb was begotten at a certain point in time. And even us old-timers, you know, the earth's crust was still cooling. Homo sapiens were first starting to walk erect. And and that's when I was a little kid. No, (laughs) just kidding. No, I'm not quite that old. Uh, all of life is, is the seeming paradoxes eternally begotten that in itself is, a, is quite a phrase isn't it eternally begotten full of grace and truth grace and truth are, are always lined up together in the scriptures because they, they themselves are seemingly paradoxical. Should we err more on the side of grace with, when we're working with each other, or should we bring more truth to bear? And the wisdom to hold those in divine tension is how you arrive at truth. So in the incarnation, we, uh, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is 100% divine. And he's 100% human. And he is not 200%. I, I've already mentioned two mentions of Louis Sabera one day. My good friend Louis Sabera was very proud of his Italian heritage, and specifically that he was Sicilian. And he would always say, uh, my mother was 100% Sicilian. My father was 100% Sicilian. I'm 200% Sicilian. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that was to let you know he was very glad that he was Sicilian. And he certainly could eat pizza. To, um, we would go to these pizza buffets when we were in college, and we would, we would uh, eventually they'd come out and say, come on, guys, and we'd go, We'll sign the deed of the restaurant to us, and then we'll leave. <laughs> Are you ready to surrender yet? No, <laughs> no, it wasn't that bad. But um, so uh, the incarnation—what an amazing truth! It's the second uh, truth our faith is built on. Jesus Christ, whom we worship, is one hundred percent human being in every way that Byron Burks is 100% human being. That David Gress is 100% human being. That Michael Hoff is 100% human being. Except he was not born with sin. Like Adam and Eve, when they were created, they had no sin. Uh, Their deeds acquired that in such a way that they passed it down to all other human beings. The only human being who was born without sin was Jesus Christ, because Adam and Eve weren't actually born. They were created as adults. But he's every bit as human as us. Therefore, his temptations were real. One of the things that I, I think has gone, grown out of fashion, but I would really, 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 like really encourage you to work hard in making this a central part of your thinking about everything. Jesus never asked you to go through anything that he hasn't already gone through for you. Never. He, he's, he faced every temptation you faced, but way more intensely because the stakes were much higher. Uh, if you struggle with fear, lust, greed, uh, laziness, Jesus was tempted in all things yet without sin. And his resurrection has the power to deliver you from anything and everything that would cause you to fall short of the glory of God. Always. 
Did you hear that? There used to be a TV preacher I liked. He's, he's Evie Hill. He's uh, long since passed away. But he'd always go, you, ain't, you're, you all ain't hearing me, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like, no, no, you're not really hearing me. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's more important than you think. You really should make an effort to get in your thinking all the time that Christ has faced this for me already. Nothing. Talk about rejection. John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Anyone ever had an uh, important relationship, whether it was a parent or a child or uh, some other relative or, or even an important church member who, who rejected you? Jesus far knows the pain of that far more than you ever will. The very nation that he created and worked with and did hundreds of miracles and sanctified for, uh, by the time Jesus came, uh, that we're dealing with about 1,850 years removed from Abraham. And yet, all that God had done when he came in their midst, they, they killed him. Have you ever uh, dealt with someone whose love towards you is fickle? One day they love you, the other day they're kind of indifferent. Think about this. Uh, on, you know, we're uh, be going into the season of Lent in February. And then we'll eventually get to Holy Week. And when we celebrate Holy Week, the Holy Week starts with Palm Sunday. It starts with the crowd of people that God had created. He had set them aside as his own people. He'd worked with them for 1,800 years. Uh, he, he had just d done three and a half years of ministry in their midst where he healed thousands and cast out demons out of thousands and taught the most divine, wonderful teachings that anyone has ever heard, great, greater than Beethoven's symphonies. That's saying a lot for me. <laughs> uh, you know, that's... <laughs> That's 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 amazing. Who was the uh, Leonard Bernstein? He actually said, uh, "Beethoven, that's the stuff of heaven. If you change one note, you would diminish the piece." In other words, it's his, he's Bernstein is saying Beethoven's music is so good that if you tried to improve it, you, you would it would be a loss. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a young donkey, which was the traditional way for a king to enter the city. It was a very deliberate act of his proclaiming, he is the king and the kingdom of God is here in me. And the crowds cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They threw their garments in the street which is symbolic, of course, of not letting the, your feet get muddy or dirty or whatever. Those same people, five days later, were the same people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate had a tradition that he would release one prisoner back to the Israelites from their people. And of course, many of the Jews favored this because many of the Jews favored a sect called the, the Zealots. Remember, one of the disciples is called Simon the Zealot. And so we are, we're most familiar with who the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And although I don't re recommend a lot about the NIV Bible or the NIV study Bible, if you don't know a lot about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, start with the uh, the, the study notes of the NIV study Bible in the very first few chapters of Matthew, Matthew, which discuss who the Pharisees and Sadducees were. 
But there were many other sects, and one of them was called the Zealots. And the Zealots were, um, they weren't Fabian socialists. Like today's Democratic Party, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton are both what's called Fabian socialists. A Fabian socialist is a person who wants to bring about communism, but they don't want to do it by a violent political revolution. They want to win it at the polls through the vote. So they wouldn't they would depart from Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky. They wouldn't believe in in bringing communism about by a military coup. They would want to bring communism about by people voting it in. So the zealots would actually sit around and discuss how they might overthrow the Romans. And they would actually do a little, uh, they, you know, like guerrilla warfare isn't something new. It didn't start with Francis Marion, the swamp fox of the Revolutionary War, one of my favorite characters in history. It started way before that. And so they would lay, lay in wait and, uh, you know, for a small contingent of Roman soldiers and, and ambush them and murder them. And occasionally they would get caught in the, what we call the thieves on the cross. That's an interesting that that has come down in English thinking, which is not scriptural and incorrect. They were actually the murderers that were, that were murdered with Jesus. And they were both guys that were zealots. But there was a much more notorious zealot named Barabbas. And Barabbas, you know, God very intentionally in his sovereignty allowed Barabbas to be caught because he's making a point for all time and all eternity because Bar in Hebrew means son and Abba means father. So he, Pilate is saying, who do you want me to release to you? The son of the father or the son of the father? Do you want the false son of the father who's really a son of, of Satan? Or do you want the true son of the father who's, who is the son of God? And they chose to crucify the son of God, the same people who had cried out Hosanna. Same exact people. You think you have problems with fickleness in your relationships? <laughs> Jesus never asks us to go through something he hasn't already done for us. Never. So the third great truth of Christianity, the second one is in the incarnation, is the scriptures. What? It's, of course, thy word is true, John 17, 17. But what do I mean by the third? Because it's the, it's the third great paradox. What we're claiming is that the Bible is 100% inerrant, with no mistakes, the Word of God, although it was written by over 40 different people on three continents over 2,000 years. And it was written in such a way that they weren't taking dictation. It'd be, uh, I guess Christiana has Sunday school. She's not in here. I don't see. Okay. So I guess we'll put it on Deanna. So, I, you know, like I could uh, ask Deanna to type up a letter for me. And she could be taking dictation. Uh, of course, I usually am much too lazy for that. I just give Christiana some basic ideas. Make it say something like this. <laughs> and then send me a copy before you send it out there. But... Uh, you know, the, uh, the word of God is written by all these people, Moses, Jeremiah, etc., around 40 different authors. But it's not just taking dictation. The, God worked in such a way that he called the people that were to be the writers. He revealed himself to them. He converted their hearts the same way you and I get converted. 
and he sanctified them progressively over time, the same way we do, until he was able to deliver a perfect word of God through them. I've never even had a very good sermon, let alone like one that I could say, that was perfect. <laughs> you know, I haven't even had one that was all that good, to be honest. But, uh, you know, we continue to try. But uh, so the truth is, uh, he did it in such a way that their personalities, their circumstances, uh, their situations, and a whole host of factors like that, human factors, come through what is being written. Yet in such a way that it's the inerrant, infallible, which goes beyond inerrant. Infallible means that it won't fail in the mission it's sent for. The message of Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. It will accomplish the purpose that he sent it for. Do you realize that God gave Romans and Galatians and Philippians and James and First and Second John, and they are still changing lives today, all the time. I'll never forget the first time I heard a really good teaching on First John. I was a few months old in the Lord. I was kind of in a nutty time where I was... Uh, reading the Bible nine or ten hours every day for about four and a half months and trying to memorize most of the epistles of the New Testament. I had just become a Christian. And, um, you know, this man said, well, First John is a book for measuring your reality. First John is all about the one who says this, but does this, is deceived. And it's, it's all, all sorts of real ways of testing and measuring where you're really at. That's what First John's about. And I find First John to be super helpful. First John 3.15. Uh, if we don't love our brother whom we have seen, how can we love God whom we haven't seen? So many Christians love to read, love to go to church, love to do things and stuff, but they're not so good at love and relationships. Love and relationships tell us where we're really at with God every day. You want to tell me how deep you know the Lord? I just want to see how you relate to your wife then I'll tell you how deep you know the Lord. So anyway, those are the three great truths of Christianity. And I've even start, got into the message. Let's get into this message a little bit. I guess we're not going to get Catherine up here today. But uh, let's read a few of these scriptures. Because I, again, every, every Christian, probably you have said this. At times you said, I don't want to do proclamation evangelism, but I, w I want to win people by the, by the you know, good lifestyle that we're living. But the Bible doesn't give us that dichotomy. And this dichotomy happened to, to Catherine and I. We, we came to the Lord through a church called, that is now called Bowling Green Covenant Church, but in those days it was called the Fellowship. Catherine came to the Lord when it was less than 15 people. And uh, most of them were 18 to 21 and were college students, uh, a couple 22 and 23-year-olds, and they were the leaders because they were, you know, the, the guy who shared the gospel with her had been discipled by Ray Nethery for about a year and a half and had come out of the hippie movement. But when, when I first encountered that group, it was a very naturally organic uh, gospel-oriented, share the gospel with everybody, it was growing. In fact, Caleb's mother was my uh, first friend, first Christian friend when I became a Christian, Martha. Lindner, she was called back then. She wasn't, I, I, I met Larry a little later. And, uh, you know, when the saints got together, we, like, we had Tuesday night meetings, Thursday night meetings, and Sunday morning meetings. And they were all like four, five, six hour meetings. And uh, all of them, the messages were usually like 
you know, 180 minutes, <laughs> three hours or something. And, uh, you know, it was a very zealous young group of Christians. Wayne McNamara, I met him in spring of 75. And, uh, of course, Sandy and Catherine met in 71. Um, and so on Fridays and Saturday nights, we didn't actually have official meetings. So we all ended up at a house called the 908 8th Street Sisters, or we were at the 909 9th Street Sisters. Your mother lived at the 908 8th Street Sisters at the time. And inevitably, there'd be 40 or 50 single people crammed into a room, which is a total violation of the fire codes, I'm sure. Not that we cared. But, uh, and someone would say, what do you want to do? And some of the less spiritual guys like Larry Trimbach and myself would say, let's go play basketball, you know, and uh, let's go bowling, let's go putt-putt. But then Martha would always go, why don't we worship for a while? <laughs> and I go, you're right, let's worship for a while. Uh, but then someone else would say, what else are we going to do? And of course, someone would say, let's go downtown to the, to the bars and share the gospel. And we did that at least once a week. And lots and lots of people became Christians through that. In fact, the whole church started because, again, Joe McAuliffe, a lot of you might recognize that name because he's big in democratic politics. His brother, Terry McAuliffe, was governor of Virginia, and he was the guy who bankrolled uh, Bill and Henry Hillary Clinton, and he was the president of the Democratic uh, party for a number of years and when they when they talk it makes Catherine and I totally laugh whenever he's on tv because they're so alike it's crazy but um so you know how the church got started was this hippie guy named Joe McAuliffe got saved and he ended up at a place in Mansfield Ohio that's now called Grace Fellowship Church I believe but it was called Grace Haven Farm at the time. And it was a place where hippies made candles. <laughs> you know, it was a place for people coming out of the counterculture to like have a part-time job. You'd work three or four hours a day. You'd study three or four hours a day. There was worship teachings every day and so forth. And Joe and uh, uh, his pregnant girlfriend, who he later married, both lived there for like a year and a half, as well as a guy named Jim Barth, who Catherine knows, you guys wouldn't know. But uh, one day, Joe McAuliffe was seeking the Lord. He felt the Lord wanted him to go to, back to Bowling Green and share the gospel. So he shared that with Ray, and Ray said, yeah, go for it. So the you know, first night he went out to share the gospel, he went to the most famous bar in Bowling Green. I was the bar I went to the night my brother died. Uh, I was 17, but they served me because they knew my family. But uh, it was called Howard's. And Joe was sharing with some friends, and the owner of Howard's said, I, I, I really like what you're sharing here. I want everybody to hear. So he actually told the band to stop playing, and he gave Joe McAuliffe a microphone, and he stood on a table and shared the gospel with the whole bar. And that's how the church that we now call Bowling Green Covenant Church got started that night. And Catherine became a Christian through Joe McAuliffe on the, on the campus sharing the gospel. So let's read a couple of these verses and then we'll, we'll wind on. Hey, Stephen, see if you can't delay the kids till at least noon, maybe to five after, something like that. Romans 10, 9 through 17. Let's just jump right ahead to uh, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are, are the feet of those who bring good, good, bring good news of good things, which is a quote from Isaiah 52, uh, verse 7. However, they did not all heed the good news, etc., so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, this issue of being sent, let me just tell, tell you this. Matthew 28, I don't have it here, but it should be on these scriptures. I can't, don't think of all of them until later when I'm... I should have put that one in there. So right in there somewhere, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Hopefully you have that one uh, memorized. It's called the Great Commission. 
And in many cases, it's become the greatest omission of most contemporary Christianity. It's what Dallas Willard's book about is, is based on that called The Great Omission. That's one of our highly recommended books on our book list. But he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. But notice he tells them, not, he doesn't tell them to make decisions. He tells them to make disciples. There is no biblical grounds for today's altar call evangelism. I'm okay with an altar call I'm, as long as you don't think of it as more than it really is. I remember a particular young man that, that I led to, the, to Christ many years ago. I uh, prayed the sinner's prayer with him at, at the end of our Bible study every week for the first six months or so that we were having a Bible study. Now, at what point, you know, there is a point in which your spirit gets quickened. Your spirit was born spiritually dead. And so by the grace of God, when, when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in your spirit, and your spirit begins to have fellowship with God even before you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so one of the first things I always ask anyone I'm trying to help grow, are you sensing the presence of God in your life? If so, how often? What activities are, do you tend to do that help you? Like, do you sense him more in corporate worship? private worship, uh, singing songs out loud or singing songs quietly in your head because you very rarely will, will get, get the results you're looking for if you sing the songs quietly in your head. It's too passive and your mind will drift too much. No, uh, but, you know, uh, and, and so forth. But I, I want to know, are, is, because I don't want you to accept some doctrines only I want you to receive Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. I shouldn't say I want. That's what he wants. We're just on his side, so we want what he wants, right? You know, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, everyone should recognize that one as Revelation 3, 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and bids me to come in, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Guess what? Listen carefully. I want to make sure everyone's listening. Guess what? That is not written to unbelievers. That is his message to one of the seven churches in Revelation. He's telling a bunch of Christians that I'm standing at your door and knocking. Do you know that the Lord knocks at your door almost every day and every night in various ways? Trying to invite you into fellowship with him. He'll knock on your door through a dream. He'll knock on your door through a lot of ways. But it all starts with the gospel proclaimed. You know, uh, hopefully we can get maybe, I I was actually going to, um, I think what we'll do before, hey, Sam Chen Sing Poon, for Sunday, November 15th, which is six weeks from now, I'm going to have uh, Christiana rework the schedule for whoever is supposed to speak at 930 and have you and Catherine both share your testimony during the 930 hour. So you'll have to work together to split up the time. And if, and if there's anyone else who came to the Lord through like street evangelist, I'd like to hear about that. You know, Sam got led to Christ on the streets of Singapore by some guy sharing the gospel, right? Happens all the time, actually. Because the word of God always accomplishes that for which it was sent. And we have a special ceremony, you know, in, in lots of churches, they have water baptism. You know, there's the whole argument, infant versus you know, we allow, you can be a fine church member and be on either side of that issue, although uh, we are infant baptizers for a number of biblical reasons. But that's another whole question, the thing. Then there's, of course, the Lord's Supper. 
Then there's the covenant ceremony called a wedding and so forth. I actually think funerals should be a certain kind of covenant ceremony. But there's one for sending. So you come up here and we'll, you know, have um, Daniel Williams, since he probably played the most soccer of anybody in our church. He will have you stand around, like stand there, and we'll all be kind of prayerful and we'll turn you around and he'll kick you as hard as he can in the butt. And then you'll be sent. Because you already were sent. And so if you need a stronger invitation, we'll create a ceremony. Daniel, Daniel can be the sender. <laughs> and he can put, don't return to sender. <laughs> there you go. So, because you are sent. The problem is, we have all kind of reasons that we're not going. You know what? The first time I ever heard of or saw an altar call was when I was speaking at my little brother's funeral. I had never heard of an altar call. I'd never seen an altar call. I didn't know that that concept existed yet. And I had read the New Testament one time through, and I was working my way through the Old Testament. And I asked my parents if I could uh, share at the, the night before the funeral called the viewing. It was uh, a room about this size, and it had like 250 or so people packed in. It was incredibly hazardous from a fireman point. Like there were people standing everywhere and on top of each other and all kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, I did my best to share the gospel. And I'm talking that I was a hippie trying to quit smoke pot, smoking pot. And uh, I had just, I had been baptized in the spirit uh, about a month earlier. And I had the joy of the Lord one day. And then I went back to being depressed uh, and, there was, and because uh, of what a guy named Peter Doan shared with me, the, the depression had lifted the morning after my little brother died, and I had been totally filled with power and joy, and I was so excited about the Lord. And so I came home, told my parents, I got to share tonight at this thing. And I, I shared, and six people came forward to receive Christ. And I started a Bible study with those six people weekly in my parents' house. You don't need a lot of equipping to be sent. You know what? You can always share what has God done in your life. Right? Probably everyone here has something God's done in their life if you know the Lord at all. And you can at least share that and start to memorize some Bible verses and, and gospel-centered things to go along with it. And you'll get better as you are sent and as you go. So let's jump down to Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, which is about halfway down. We're going to try to wrap up pretty soon. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, several translations, New King James, King James, ESV, etc., uh, instead of be exalted or set on high as the NET, have words more about safety. And uh, if you look at the, what's called the, um, what do they call that? The Amplified Bible, especially the Amplified Classic Edition, It'll use both set on high and be made safe. So apparently the Greek word or the Hebrew word has something to do with coming up into the presence of the Lord, but because of that, you're, you're protected from your enemies. That's what trusting in the Lord does. Because fear is based on the, the uh, idea that someone can harm you. And so what this verse is saying is when you're trusting in the Lord, there's no one to harm you. 
they can laugh at you, but it's, you know, like, I, I've had the privilege of having a lot of ministries in, in, to ignorant people. And um, it, it doesn't really matter if they laugh at you or whatever. What you're there for is not to get their approbation. If you still need that, go back to the Lord to get that. What you're there for is to help them, to rescue them. It, it, it matters very little what they think of you, except from the point of view that if God opens their eyes enough to the gospel that they put some respect on what you're saying and listen and so forth, that you hope that what happens is what Paul told the Thessalonians. He said, I thank God that when you received our message, you received it for what it really is, the word of God and not of man. And so if they don't like Roseanne, it doesn't matter. It matters if they hear the word of God through her. And if they all of a sudden click and say, you know, uh, that Deanna sure talks funny, but who cares? But what she said opened my eyes to the word of God. And so it doesn't matter if they uh, talk with a Spanish accent, Indian accent, uh, deep voice, low voice, high voice. None of that matters. It doesn't matter whether they like you. It matters whether by the grace of God, their eyes are being opened. You know, when you still have the fear of man in it, then you're still really coming from a very narcissistic perspective. Guess what? There's a lot, you know, I've studied in the last year or two a lot about narcissism. Let me tell you something. Deep secret here. Deep, deep secret. Don't, in fact, we should turn off the video. Don't let this out. The bottom line problem of every fallen human being is we're narcissists to the core. We're all too self-centered and to, to whatever degree we are no longer self-centered, it's because of the rescuing salvation mercy of Christ. To what degree you're really compassionate over people or crying over their lostness or burden for them or entering into their situation in your heart or in their pain, uh, where you're putting them first, that's the work of God that only he can do. I can't like go, I'm going to be less selfish. I'm going to be less selfish. I'm going to be less, Sam, I'm going to really try hard to be less selfish. That will last n- not very long. <laughs> right? Only it's a work God does called sanctification. And it's a progressive work. And little by little, God changes us so that we care more about the glory of his name and his agenda and what he values. And we don't care so much about what we care about anymore. And that's the grace of God. And that's called sanctification and maturation. And our frame of reference gets to be more and more and more Christ-centered. And secondly, through Christ's eyes, more and more and more that, that other person we're trying to help centered. And you really, when you, when you store up a lot of scripture, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and when, when God gives you insight into what that person is struggling with, and when it frankly doesn't have anything to do with you, that's when the fruit of God starts to come forth because it's his fruit. Some some of the verses we're not going to get to, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the fruit that's in there somewhere, probably on the second page. Right? You, You know what? You can, I would encourage you that you have to find a way, a place, a format. There's this false lie called the dichotomy between lifestyle evangelism 
and proclamation evangelism. Both are absolutely essential. Neither can be divorced from, the, from what we're about. The reason we disciple, the reason we have discipleship groups, the reason we help people grow is we want you to become more Christ-like in every way. From your attitudes and motivations to your social skills to your uh, financial management skills to your uh, command of God's word and so forth. And that's why Paul talks over and over again about the, he goes, and whom I'm again in labor so that we may complete, put, complete, present you full or, or complete in Christ. You know, what we're after for each other is we're after helping the person be more complete in every way. Right? So I'm, I'm going to end there because it's late. Um, hopefully you're, uh, the, the one about planting and watering Oh, I, I want to make that, I, I got a good closing point. So on the top of page two, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 11, is the, the one I referred to earlier about Apollos. Paul planted Apollos water, God caused the growth. Again, then he says again that God caused the growth. Now, I don't know about you. Listen carefully. I know we've got kids. It's okay. I can, I'm louder than the kids. Amazing. Now that's an annoying no, <laughs> louder than kids, wow. Uh, so listen to this carefully. You, you, you got to get this. You really do. The whole thing of God causes the growth, et cetera. Okay, I forgot the point I wanted to make. I have many mistakes in my theology. <gasps> Guess what? You do too. You have some big ones. I have some big ones. So one of the things I'm always asking God to do is help me see, you know, that's why I have guys like Ray Nethery and Ned Barubri in my life, and Catherine is, is one of the great sources of helping me see what I'm not seeing right. Now, be, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, my whole Christian life started with um, I was very involved in the Eastern mystical side of, of psychedelic drugs, and I, my spirit started leaving my body and descending into hell when I was 17, and I couldn't stop it for a number of years. And I even went to see Derek Prince about it. So I think it has a lot to do with that because, like, I've always said I will never, and I'm about to lose this never if we don't do something about this. I don't, I don't want to be the pastor of a church that's not organically and deliberately evangelistic. Did you hear that? I do not want to be the pastor of a church that's not deliberately, organically, intentionally evangelistic. If you have never witnessed, if you have never led someone to Christ, I feel very sorry for you. There is no greater thrill in life than being a part of God bringing someone into the kingdom and feeling like I contributed a little bit and, and for somehow because I was praying and crying out to God somehow I didn't even muck it up or too much <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh, there's nothing better than that nothing that's why Jesus tells us in Luke 15 that you know they, they have a party angels rejoiced I meant to get a cake for Catherine's uh, 40 this is this past Thursday was her 49th spiritual birthday and uh, now, most people can't remember the exact day or time of day that they came to Christ. I just remember the year and the, the approximate six to eight month period that it was happening. But that's okay. You know, um, so, this, 
I, this, this verse where Paul goes, each one will receive his own reward. I, I put that in bold print and underline it. Because honestly, you know, I, I am trying to be a better pastor. I hope you'll pray for me. But something that is just a real problem for me, I don't think about rewards ever. I just don't approach my walk with Christ like that. But the scriptures do. There are rewards. And so what Paul is actually saying here is that for those people who plant and water and share the gospel, God has rewards for that. Now, there's a verse in Revelation that talks about um, um, he comes quickly and uh, his reward is with him. And I always say, because the reward is him. That's why he, the reward is with him, because he is the reward. But I, I believe that something that's erroneous in my Christian thinking is there are other kinds of rewards. I just have a gap in my thinking that I don't think like that very much. Um, I'm very motivated by the fact that people are lost and I want them to know the Lord. I don't think very much in terms of, honestly, when I think about heaven, I always have this vision of a great stadium. And like, I always think, like, hopefully I'll get to sit up in the last rows with like a pair of good binoculars so I can see the Lord and all the great saints down there. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just happy if I get to go to the game, you know. Uh, I, I, don't, I honestly, I don't think that much about rewards. Uh, thankfully, because I also don't think about uh, all the judgments I deserve. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't, I actually don't think like that. But, apparent, but the scriptures do a lot more than I do. So that's just a, a wrong problem in my thinking that I don't know how to correct. I'm just confessing it to you because uh, I think it wouldn't say so much about rewards throughout the New Testament if rewards weren't important and I think for some people, probably for most people, we should be more motivated about the fact that there are rewards. And I still hold to the fact that the greatest reward is, is to know more of him. That's why his reward is with him, because his reward is him. So we'll end with that. But I, I just would encourage you, um, find a way to regularly do proclamation evangelism, whether we are currently running a program along that lines. Um, I, I guess I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I do know that like Stephen and Noel, you, got, like, you guys go to the UD ghetto, don't you? And share the gospel like at least once a week or so, right? Something like that. And, um, you know, I was, I was intending to, but I, the, but I didn't get that far, or I forgot to do it when I was working. I was intending to make a list, but uh, some of you know the Pringer family, because Larry's married to a Pringer. But the Pringers came to Christ the very first night we went sharing the gospel in the apartments around Wright State. Uh, they were living in, what's the name of those apartments? Muddle Run Apartments. And they had just gotten married, and they were kind of not practicing their Catholic faith, but they were still Catholics. I think they went to church, you know, a few times a year or something. But, you know, that night, the person, I, you know, Catherine took one person and I took one person because we were the only two people that had any experience doing it. And it was the only night that I've ever gone out sharing that no one ever let me into their apartment. <laughs> like, I, we never got inside to talk to anybody. And after about an hour and a half, I said, we should probably find Catherine. And you were with Larry Schomer, right? And um, so we, you know, we're walking around the buildings listening. To, and finally, I heard Catherine sharing with these people. So I actually sat down at the, their, their door was right by some stairway that went up to the second floor. So I sat down and I listened and I listened and I listened. And after about like another half hour, so now the, she's been in there two hours, I go, man, this is going really good. I'm just going to knock on the door and join in. So I did. 
But they started coming right away to Bible studies. Within three weeks, they had received Christ. They're still Christians to this day. They raised their kids as Christians. Uh, some of you probably know some of their kids. I know you do. Because um, one of their kids married Emma Summary. So, but, you know, on and on. You know, uh, Eric Ryan, this guy in Bowling Green that, um, you know, we... We knocked and knocked on doors. We didn't get in anyone for over half an hour. We were about to leave, and there's a thing in sales that says, one more call, you know, when you struck out. So I said, let's just knock on one more door. This guy invites us in. We ask some preliminary questions. And uh, this guy, Eric, goes, well, you know, uh, my sister, she's what, what you call a charismatic Christian. Have you ever heard of that? I said, I think so. <laughs> you know? And uh, and he said, uh, I've been thinking about becoming one, but I just haven't done it yet. And then he was with his girlfriend, who, who ironically later they, uh, broke, broke up with them after, a month after they became Christians and they both married other people. But her name was Pam Kibbe. And uh, Pam goes, so I said, Pam, what do you think of all this stuff? And she goes, well, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I've just been waiting to see what Eric's going to do. And so both of them signed up to, uh, so to speak, like we got the next appointment to have a Bible study like a day later, like Eric came over to my house and we had a Bible study. You know, some of you guys have heard of Anwar Sawoya, but, uh, you know, Anwar almost beat me up the first night I shared with him. He was really mad and he could definitely have taken me. <laughs> he had won the, the teenage tournament in Lebanon for tennis twice. I mean, he was very athletic. Uh, very strong guy and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, so he, but he was kind of, he's from Lebanon. So, you know, I said, well, let's have a Bible study. So to that, him, that meant like, come over for lunch tomorrow. So when I got there, he had cooked spaghetti, a very nice mid Middle Eastern salad with feta cheese and all kind of good stuff on it. And, uh, and Michelob, uh, light or Michelob, I forget, beer. And so we had two beers and a salad and spaghetti and a Bible study for a couple hours. About three weeks later, he became a Christian. So listen to this, people. About one year later, he found out that some Americans, Christians think you shouldn't drink beer or wine. He had never heard of such an idea, but when he found that out, he made a point of coming to me and saying, Greg, if you had not had the beer with me, we would have never had the Bible study. Now, fortunately, the best class I took as an undergraduate was called Middle Eastern Geography, and I knew that about Middle Eastern culture. If, I, if you rejected their, their hospitality, he would have asked me to leave had I not said yes to the beer. So keep that in mind when you, if you're from a you know, fundamentalist background or whatever. It's more about people, and it's more about, like, what would be acceptable to them within limits, of course. But All right, so that's enough for today. Let's, let's have our communion.